All right. We've been teaching through 1 Timothy chapter 3, line upon line, verse upon verse, and we came to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which starts to talk about elders and really the criteria for two of the officers in the church, elders and then deacons. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the King James uses the term bishop. Other translations will use the word overseer. But bishop and overseer are the same word in the Greek, which is episkopos, but they're also synonymous with the word elder, uh, presbutero, uh, according to Titus. So again, just trust me here. You can go look it up later. Titus chapter 1 equates elders and bishops. And then here the qualifications are spoken of. It's called a bishop. And I don't want to bog down into church governments too much. Um, we would say that all ministers are elders, as in full-time ministers are elders. We would say preachers. All preachers are elders, but not every elder in the church is a preacher. And when we deal with true New Testament elders, uh, I'm going to get bogged down way more than I want to. There are four types of elders in the New Testament church. We won't deal with that. But you have your senior elders. You have your minister elders. You have your laity elders. And anyway, there's three. But this here, it says, this is not a ministry gift, a preacher, because it says if you desire the office of a bishop, you desire a good work. We know this isn't a full-time minister because ministers don't desire to be ministers. They're called by God. And many a preacher since the church began has said, pray that God would not call you to ministry. Many a successful minister looks at the young, next generation and says, if you think you're called, ask God, are, is he sure? Because you don't want to do this unless you're really called. You can't handle it. It destroys people. Don't pretend to be it. Don't act like it. James tells us, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. You can just begin to think you are in your heart. It'll bring a greater judgment and a greater pressure on you because you're imagining that you are it. You would be better off just being a good old business person, loving your wife and your kids, working your nine to five or your eight to six or whatever you work, and just be a good elder in a local church. Be a good deacon in the local church. Be a Sunday school teacher. Trust me, that's better than being a preacher. You don't want to be a preacher unless God's called you. But if God's called you, it consumes you. It does not leave you alone. There is no neutral ground in being a full-time preacher. You're either advancing and pushing towards it or you're running from it. If you can sit there and idle like a boat, just going blub, 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 you're not called. This thing grips you. You go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. Every decision you make, you're the anointing that's on you is saying, how's this going to affect the ministry? Everything you're doing, you're saying, well, maybe the Lord's, I'm learning this for the ministry. But if you, can, if you can take a ministry calling and just pet it like a pretty thing, you don't have a calling. This thing is affecting how you parent. It's affecting how you husband and your wife. It's affecting how you work for your boss. And if it's not, then you're probably running away from it going, I can't be in church because the more I get in church, the more that calling calls out to me. And, and really, in a sense, harasses me. So my observation has been, I've been spirit-filled since 1996, so that's 27 years. So being spirit-filled 27 years, when you're called of God to full-time ministry, you're called of God by the Holy Ghost, you're either pressing into it or you're running from it. There is no middle ground. There is no coming to church three services a week and it not going anywhere. That's been my observation. And the fathers that went on before me uh, testified to the same thing. So if you can still talk about it, but you're not any closer, you didn't have it. That's my general judgment. Well, I disagree, Pastor. Well, put up or shut up. That's all I can say. You look at Aaron's rod that budded. He was genuinely called to be the priest, and they put his rod of authority in the presence of God, and it flowered, and it blossomed, and it bare almonds. And everybody else had a stick. And they put it in the presence of God. And you know what it came out as? Stick. This is not a ministry eldership. This is just an elder. And I don't mean just because it's an office, but you can desire this office, but in desiring it, what you're really desiring is a good work. Now that work is also what separates those called from those who just think they're called. Because when you're genuinely called to the ministry, there's a thing on you that's always gobbling up for more. What can I do next? What can I do next? What can I do next? You, there's, this, there's this anointing that just consumes you that has got to be spent helping the local church, soul winning here, hosting a Bible study there, doing this. There's this it's an anointing that has to do something. It's like Samson. He just could not stand still. He had to go find a Philistine because that's what he's called to do. And the Bible says the Spirit of God would move upon him in the camp. 
and it would stir him up. The Philistines would come near to that internment camp that they were living in, and it would move upon him because he couldn't just be passive with this thing. The calling of ministry is the calling to work, and the kingdom takes work. And if you're genuinely called, you're going to be consumed in a regard of what's the next thing that needs to be done. How can I help you, pastor? How can I help you, elder? How can I help you, deacon? How can I help you? If, if you're too lazy, you're just a stick. Yeah, coming to church is great. But if we put you in the presence of God and there's no blossoms, there's no buds, there's no almonds, there's no calling. That's, that's just how the kingdom works. And I don't know if that strips of you your dreams, but at some point you got to wake up and realize it was just a dream. We covered last week the origin of eldership because it's inherited from Moses. Paul is writing. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and everything he's basing his New Testament doctrine upon does come from the Old Testament. He understood the law of Moses. He understood the Torah. He also understood the oral law, which is something totally different than the written law. And I want to show you something. Uh, well, we're going to turn to Exodus here in a minute. These elders, the elder or the office of the bishop, same thing, it's synonymous. These are designed to help the ministry, which is caring for people. If your only concern is pulpit, you're not a real minister. As a pastor and as a full-time minister, this is maybe four hours of my week. And that's the delivery time. Everything else I do as a full-time minister is meeting with people in private, checking on people, making phone calls, writing curriculum, making sure this is administrated and making sure that's administrated. If all you're interested in is pulpit, you're not qualified for ministry because this thing is a work. And I've said for many years and many times, the preaching is the absolute easiest part of a preacher's life. This is easy. This, we could shoot from the hip all day long, have nothing, never run out of things to say. But the work is what is necessary. If you're going to be an elder in the house of God and the Bible says it's a good thing, then what you're asking for is give me more work to do. We don't have more elders in the kingdom because Christians are allergic to work. Now they'll build their own kingdom and they'll remodel their hot rod and they'll always buy the next bigger boat. But God forbid they give any of their life to building the kingdom selfish. We've said for a long time, the kingdom is built by a few and enjoyed by many. And at some point you have to grow up in Christ and realize I have more to give to the kingdom than just Sunday morning and a $5 offering to the missionary. At some point you realize I was made by my God to serve him. And then you get to serving. So let's look at this foundation of eldership. Go to Exodus chapter, uh, we want to go to chapter three. And you see an evolution and an advancement of this doctrine or this concept of elders. Now, Paul is building the New Testament doctrine on top of the foundation that is the Old Testament. The Jews believe in elders. The, the position is established in Israel. It becomes a position of leadership throughout the Old Testament. And as Israel becomes a nation, they go from being an um, a possessed people, a, po a possessed chattel slavery and in Egypt, then they become a free nomadic people, and then they become a nation. You know, when they're a nomadic people, they're not really a nation with a sovereign territory. They're just a group of Bedouins wandering around in the desert. And then they move into their promised land, and they become a nation with a property and a territory. If you don't have a property and a territory, you're not a nation. You're a people group. And so God gave them property. So we can see here that during their growth in Egypt over 400 years, that they developed eldership because that's what tribal people do. You have the tribal elders. So over the 400 years of slavery, there is a hierarchy that develops even among an oppressed people. It's always going to be a hierarchy because even when you're the slave owner, you've got to go to the representative of the people you're oppressing and they sort things out. Uh, and the scripture very clearly teaches that, that when Pharaoh decides to oppress Israel more, he goes to the officers of the Hebrew, the Hebrew officers over the people and says, no more straw for you. Even the oppressed had officers that were oppressed, but they were less oppressed. So there's a hierarchy. There's always going to be a hierarchy. There is no such thing as equality. Wake up. Equality under the law, but no equality in life because it's a hierarchy. 
Exodus chapter 3 is when God is speaking to Moses and he's telling him that this is what you're going to do. And you're going to go say this and you're going to go say that. And look at uh, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together. Moses has been on the wilderness for 40 years tending sheep. He goes into Egypt to his people and they already have established elders. And God tells Moses, the shepherd, soon to be a chief executive, go gather the elders and let's disseminate what I've just told you to them. So Moses has now inherited a collection of national leaders, elders. And his job is to relate to them the information. And that's what he's going to do. Say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the afflicted, affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to your voice. So that's really good when the elders listen to their leaders. Right? That's pretty good, huh, Pastor Caleb? So, so here we're building the foundation of what an elder is because if you want to be an elder, number one, you've got to want to work. And number two, if you want to be an elder, you've got to listen to what the leader says. But I also point this out. Just, I, I had a big doctrinal discussion yesterday with some preacher friends of mine, and their church governments are way different. They see elders as equal with the pastor because that's just wonky doctrine. It's what they believe. But I think here we see the pattern of eldership established, and there's an executive over the elders, and the executive tells the elders what to do and how it's going to go, and the elders will hearken. So we're building the concept of elders or presbytery and an executive. Because if you're going to build the doctrine, let's go back to the very first place they're mentioned, and here it is. Go speak to the elders, and they will listen to you. You know that's a miracle. Because they don't... <laughs> well, in some denominations, it is miraculous. There are actually some forms of church governments where you have a presbytery, that is a group of elders, and one man rotates a year as the senior elder. They rotate who the, basically the pastor is. Maybe two years, maybe three years, they kind of rotate it off. That's a presbytery-led church. I don't agree with it. God gets his work done. I think we could punch holes in it all day long, but we're looking at the foundation of eldership. Verse 18, they shall hearken to your voice, and thou shalt come. You shall come, you and the elders of Israel. So here's the third thing we see with eldership. Number one, they want to work. Number two, they listen to the leader. Number three, they go with the leader. They stand with him in the face of the enemy. They will go with you. You and the elders of Israel, you shall go into the king of Egypt, and ye, that is yens, cookful Sparta, y'all, you're Yankee, use guys. Uh, if you're from Red Bowling Springs, uh, uh. <laughs> We speak multiple dialects in this church, so I want to make sure we cover all of them. Uh. <laughs> That's not fair. I don't even know where Red Bowling Springs is, just north of here. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> you, you shall say unto him, so the elders are now going to be targeted. But they claim they want liberty. So you've got to stand with the executive who's just heard from God to go confront the enemy of the people. So we might say, if you want to be an elder, you're willing to be shot at too. You're willing to be made an enemy for the congregation's sake too. You go speak to him and you shall say, now watch how the, the pronouns, because we're, we're not confused about pronouns in this church. The Lord God of the, Hebrew, of the Hebrews hath met with inclusive, yins, because it's not just Moses now. It's not just Moses and Aaron, Moses, Aaron, and the elders. They're now going to speak with inclusive pronouns to say, we're on board with this. The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now let us go. Because you're agreeing with the vision. It's not just Moses' vision. We want to go. 
and we're with you, Moses, and we're willing to take a stand and fight if we have to. Let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So these are the, really the first two places you see the elders shown. And the thing I see here is that these are elders Moses has inherited. He did not select these elders. And there's not a limited number. We don't know how many this is. If you're dealing with maybe a million, some say as many as two million Israelites, this could be hundreds of men. Hundreds. So when you jump ahead to Exodus 15, let's do that real quick. Verse 27. And they, Israel, we're jumping ahead past the Red Sea, past the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies. Israel came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water, one for each tribe, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. That 70 corresponds to the number of elders that the Lord finally recognized. Now, this is foretelling, but what we're about to see in chapter uh, 24 we're going to see that actually there's a lot more. Uh, there's the 70 that the Lord appoints and reveals. Look at, uh, jump to Exodus 24. Verse 1. And God said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So we go from not knowing how many there are I would say hundreds of elders. Think about this. When you're called, you're, you're dealing with the nation of enslaved people, we'll say a million, and you want to go meet with the Pharaoh, the president of your captivity, and you show up with an entourage of a thousand leaders of the enslaved people, it's going to make a political impact. And that's pretty impressive. I might add, and it's worth studying, you never see the elders actually go talk to Pharaoh with Moses. It's not there. So what happened? But here we see 70 of the elders, not the 70 elders, but 70 of the elders, which is the first time you see God begin to winnow down the number that is needed. But this is still of the batch of elders that Moses inherited. He's not selected any of these guys. But maybe now he's about to because it says to get 70. So I'm sure Moses is like, all right, You've been faithful. You've been there praying for me. I like you. you always got joy. You're smiling. You look strong. And he starts to select some. There's a, a big bunch to gather, but God says 70. And so they do it. Verse 9, they went up, Moses, Aaron, Dadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. All right. Uh, so we start to see this eldership. They want to work. They listen to the executive, the senior leader, and they stand with him. And apparently out of, we'll just say again, my conjecture, out of a thousand elders, you maybe get a group of 70 that can really work with Moses. So jump to numbers now. And again, we're jumping around, but I'm trying to do a broad teaching on the, the presbytery or the elder's office. We covered this last week. So this is a little bit of review, a little bit of new material, talking about church leaders and church elders. So here's the story where Israel's calling out. They're crying. They're complaining about food. They're complaining about manna. We're bored with manna. What's up with this bread from heaven? We're bored with bread from heaven. Give us something better. And Moses is thinking, this is all I got. This is all I got. I can't feed everybody. It's a miracle that we get this every day. How can you guys already be bored with this? And so Moses says, Lord, if you love me, kill me. We joke about that, even though I don't know if suicide is humorous, but it is kind of jokingly here. He's like, Lord, if you love me, please kill me that I may not see my wretchedness. Verse 16, the answer to Moses's wretchedness, the, Mo, the answer to Moses's inadequacy or his feelings of inferiority. You're dealing with Moses here. This is a man who was a tremendous leader under the Egyptian army until he was run off. This is a man that walked with God and saw God face to face. And yet the complaints and the nagging and the bellyaching of a congregation is enough to drive him to suicide. That's the power of people. This is a man that can go to the tabernacle and God will come down and talk to him face to face. But when he leaves and looks at the congregation, he says, Lord, just kill me. And I want you as a congregation to know you have that power to drive a minister or a preacher to quit. 
And they say something like 1,800 preachers quit a month or something like that out of exhaustion, out of burnout. I was just hanging out with some preachers this week, and a lot of different denominations require pastors take as much as a quarter sabbatical every five years. Three months off. It's part of their bylaws. You have to. Why? Because they know they're absolutely nearly killing their preacher. It's also very common in a lot of our American denominations for the pastors to rotate churches every five years or seven years, depending on their, their constitution, because they get burnt out on a church or a church gets to where they no longer respect them. And so to keep the livelihood of the preacher, they move them to the next congregation. All of this is a reflection of both the shepherd probably not ministering fully in the power of the Holy Spirit, but also the congregation absolutely abusing their shepherd. Think about Moses. Uh, Josephus and other historians teach us he was a mighty military leader. He led the wars against the Ethiopians. Some say he married the, uh, the Ethiopian queen. He was no weakling. He was no pretty boy. And yet, to hear the complaining of God's people was enough to drive him to suicide. You need to understand that that is the burden of you. So your heart should be like Galatians says, let me bear one another's burdens. May I never be the burden. Not everybody's going to have a burden, but may we grow up. Say, Lord, may I grow up and stop being such a burden. May I lift burdens. May I carry burdens. May I never be the burden, or at least not more than I should be. Babies are burdens, and we get that. But at some point, you're no longer a 12-year-old burden. You start to harness your kids to help around the house. Hey. Amen. Some Christians have been saved 30 years. They're still a burden because they're still babies. All right. So he says, the Lord, what do I do? Verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know. So now we see a transition. We see an evolution of the eldership. It's no longer a body that the executive inherits. It's now elders he gets to pick. That doctrine is carried through and is manifested there in Titus, where Paul told Titus, the pastor of the church at Crete, you ordain elders in all the churches. It becomes the executive's decision as to who he picks to be the elders. And then our passage, 1 Timothy 3, says what we're to look for in elders. Number one, they got to want to do the work. You don't appoint lazy, burdensome people to the eldership because they're supposed to help you bear the burdens of the people. When they're the burden, they're not good elders. So if you want to be an elder in our church, you got to stop being the burden. Now, we, I help our elders, and everybody, every elder's always coming to me with something because they got bigger fish to fry, and they're always at new places, and that's okay. But like if we're dealing with elementary school burdens, I mean, we're still fighting like cats and dogs in our marriage. And we got issues here. You're not eldership material yet. You still aim for it, but you're just not there yet. You know who these people are, elders whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tabernacle of the congregation that they may stand there with thee. Here's that same exhortation. Just like the early elders were to stand with Moses and talk to Pharaoh, and together as a unified body, you guys confront the enemy of my people, these elders are elders you get to pick because you know they're with you. And they're going to stand there with you in my tabernacle before the people. That's what we need out of elders. That's what any pastor is looking for when he appoints elders. He needs a, a couple, a husband and wife, because we appoint both together, that loves and adores the pastor and his wife. Because I'm I'm we're a package deal too. Uh, we love pastor, but that wife of his. Or, well, we love Miss Manna, but that pastor of hers. Uh, no, you either love us or you don't. And if you don't, we'll still love you, but we're not using you. Because I, I don't need uh, saboteurs. Amen. Amen. A lot of my preacher friends have been hurt by elder saboteurs who they let get too close and then they began to do their demonic little uh, usurpation thing. And uh, that's when the pastor's faith and love really gets tested. He says, does he curse them or pray that God have mercy on them? He says that they're going to stand there with thee, verse 17, and I will come down and talk with thee there. Notice he's not talking to the elders. And I will take of the spirit which is upon you and I will put it upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee. That's the work 
of the ministry. If you want to be an elder, then what you're saying is, let me help you bear the burdens of people. That's why if there's a genuine calling to ministry, it's going to, you're going to work through the rank and file of the local church. And the last position you're going to hold before we're able to send you off into full-time ministry is that of an elder. Because as an elder, you get to feel the spiritual burden of a congregation, which is going to equip you for full-time ministry. We will never promote anybody to full-time ministry. We could not first promote to deacon and then elder, because that's the hierarchy of responsibility. The whole reason they pastor's anointing, or in this case, Moses' anointing, who was considered the first shepherd of Israel, it gets put upon them because they have to be anointed with the same power and presence to care for people in the same manner. They have to be able to share the pastor's perspective. They have to be able to represent the pastor's vision. They're not trying to do their own thing. They're going to care for the sheep like the Moses would care for the sheep. They want to bear the burden like Moses would bear the burden. They're going to delegate authority and, and correct things as the shepherd would. And if they don't have the shepherd's heart, he could never trust them with uh, an endowment of the grace of God that's on his life because they may take that and try to split the church like an Absalom or someone like that. He says, they'll bear the burden of the people with thee, that you bear it not thyself alone. The people are the biggest burden of the ministry. It's a weird catch-22 for the shepherd. Without you, I have no purpose. Without you, I have no burden. <laughs> and so my purpose seems to be burden, and burden seems to be my purpose. And yet, God sticks us together, and we've made the observation that as, as a shepherd, unless you're just really drunk and addicted to marketing and poaching, you don't get to pick your team. I don't, I don't know who's going to walk through those doors next. I don't know who you're going to invite from Charlie's or Walmart or Street Evangelism or from your I don't know who you're going to bring in. And I, don't, I, I wish I could like maybe regulate it a little bit, but maybe not. It's kind of fun and sporty. Like, oh, who are these folks? What are they going to think of us? Will they like us? Are they here to steal sheep? Are they here to be offended? Are they here to be taught? Are they here to be pastored? Are they here to be church split? What are they here for? These are the things that have to go through the preacher's mind. And then, I, then sometimes I think, who brought you? Well, I'm not coming back. Well, take the people that invited you. <laughs> yeah. So the Lord does this for the elder and the anointing of God comes upon those elders. They become anointed to help Moses. And the first thing that happens is they begin to prophesy, just like Moses would speak by the spirit of God. And this became the pattern that then Moses, uh, excuse me, Paul builds upon in the New Testament. The 70 then becomes what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin developed in the intertestamental period between the time of Ezra and Christ. And so you know the Sanhedrin, or King James calls it the council, but the Greek word is Sanhedrin, which basically means the 70. That becomes kind of the legal elders that took on more of a political role uh, than a spiritual role. But Paul rekindles that role and says that the churches should have elders. Peter says in 1 Peter that, the ministers are also elders because we have to care for the people. So, all right, come back to 1 Timothy 3. Oh, wait, 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 no, no, no. Let's go to Isaiah. This is something I want to show you. I just recently learned this maybe about a month or two ago. This is not in the botany book. Uh, it's in the notes we are already collecting for the second edition. Let's go New Living Translation. Let me just say something, uh, another thing or two about these elders' offices. Isaiah chapter 9, let's begin in verse 13, Ben. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13. We're going to look at New Living Translation because it'll read a lot clearer. The reason this is not in the botany book is because the word was not a regular word for a palm tree. Because we said last week, palm trees represent elders. So here in verse 13, For after all this punishment, the people will still not repent. They will not seek the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, let's just pause there. How much judgment, how much misery do you and I have to go through before we stop and say, well, Lord, where was the last place I had peace? Where was the last place I had joy? Where was the last place I had excitement? Where was the last time I had just fullness of happiness and glory on me? We're just as stubborn as these people were. In our dispensation as Christians, 
we get dumb and rebellious, God doesn't cast us off. He just starts walking backwards a little bit and his glory and his provision lifts off of us and we start to suffer more than we should. And we're too dumb to recognize, you know, it was better when I walked with God. For all the weirdness that's happening in our nation right now, our politicians and our academics think the solution is less of God and more of government. And we are watching how that's exponentially just get really, really weird really quick. And if you call it weird, you're called a hater. I'm sorry, but up until like six minutes ago, everybody agreed it was weird. Verse 14, therefore, in a single day, the Lord will destroy both the head and the tail, the noble palm branch and the lowly reed. Now that's pretty interesting, the head and the tail. And then he says, the noble palm branch and the lowly reed. Now, why would God go and start destroying palm trees and lowly reeds? What do they have to do with anything? That's just botany. Why does God hate trees? <laughs> he said they were good in the beginning. He made them and said they're good. Well, verse 15 says, the leaders of Israel are the head. That is, other translation says, the elders of Israel, still talking about elders, they are the head that he's going to destroy. That's the palm tree. And the lying prophets are the tail. For the leaders of the people have misled them. They have led them down the paths of destruction. So why is God going to judge the elders and the prophets? Because they're the ones that keep telling the people you don't have to repent. This sounds a lot like the, a lot of the hireling preachers today that say, hey man, every day's a Friday. You don't have to repent of anything. God wants to be good to you. Yeah, he wants to be good to you, but he can't be good to you because you're so dirty. These are the lying preachers. And as long as you're hearing messages like you don't have to repent and God, God gets you and he... He, no, he doesn't. All right. Let me be very clear. God does not get you because he's wondering, why are you still in that pig pen? I don't think he gets you. He would like to have you, but he sure don't have you. God gets you. He died for you once and he's telling you, come up, come up higher, come up higher, come up higher. The Bible says, don't bring Christ down from above again. He's only coming down once. He's not coming down again. Our job now is to come up. These are, this is a common gospel message today. It's not the real gospel. So because of Israel's leaders, God says, I'm going to destroy the head and the tail, the mighty palm or the graceful palm and the lowly reed. And they represent the leaders. This is confirmation that palm trees represent elders. We, we've talked about they're tall. They can grow up to be 75 to 100 feet tall. They have palm branches. Their palm branches can be 25 to 30 feet long, which is basically from here to the sound booth. That's a massive branch. They provide shade. They provide uh, uh, date palm. This is a date palm. They provide dates, three and 400 pounds of dates per tree which is 85, 90% sugar by content. So their nourishment, this is, these are elders in the local house of God. They provide shade. They provide a nourishing word of encouragement. You can take refuge under them in the desert sand. You can see them a long way off. If you can see the elders, you can see there's water there because palm trees don't exist where there isn't life-giving water. There definitely isn't going to be a cluster of palm trees if there isn't life-giving water. So what's that next slideshow here? Let's look at these pictures. I pulled together a couple pictures we looked at one of these pictures last week about the date palm and the oasis. I think we looked at this Sunday morning when we talked about growth. So here's an oasis in the desert. And one of the things we pointed out with this oasis of date palms is that if these palm trees represent elders, and we have ascertained that they do, all the elders are at different heights because elders are still growing too. And when you appoint brand new elders, they're not as tall as the elders that have been with us forever. And I'm, I'm an elder in our local church, but I'm not as stately as my pastor, Dr. Barclay, or Billy Graham. You know, I'm, I might be one of these short little palm trees on the right, but I want to be like one of these big palm trees here in the middle. And then, and then maybe there's a bigger one with bigger leaves over here that I want to be as tall as the tallest one, but I want bigger branches like on the far, your far left there. So we kind of looked at in the local church, when you have an elder board or presbytery, you have different heights of maturity. And that's all right. Because we're always wanting to appoint new ones. And then we're sending out the ones who are called to the ministry. So, you know, we got some growth. Now, here's the terrifying thing. He said, I will break the head. And this actually does happen to date palms. You can break the head of them off, not just lose the branches. Because if they lose the branches, they can grow back. But to break the head off, means to you, there's a thing called the palm heart, and that's where, like the heart of any plant, 
uh, like cabbage, the head. That's where the palms open up. You can actually make a date salad, a palm salad out of it. But God said he would break the head. He would, he would damage the head. He would tear it off. He would cut off from Israel, head and tail, the date branch and the reed. When you break the head off of a palm tree, it's a ghostly looking sign of confusion. And when you break that head, it no longer is an elder. It no longer provides shade. It no longer provides nourishment, but it's the judgment of God. And it's really one of the only ways to kill a palm tree. You can cut it down, but you break that head off, it's dead. It cannot, without that palm heart, it can't keep growing. It can lose all of its limbs and keep growing. But if it loses the heart, the palm heart, it's toast. Next picture, because there's a couple of these. This really happens. In Israel, the Middle East, date palms. Uh, date palms are a little bit different than, say, Florida palms. Um, and some of these names escape me. Uh, fan palms. These that are designed for hurricanes. They're not hurricanes in the Middle East. So they don't have to endure those kind of winds. We've all seen the Florida hurricanes or even the Hawaiian hurricanes, a typhoon. That They can endure that. But in the Middle East, you get a, a strong gust. You can snap that head off, and it's no longer an elder. This really sounds like Timothy having the form of godliness but nothing to contribute. No shade, no encouraging word, just, I'm an elder around here. No, you're a stick because <laughs> you don't provide nothing for nobody. You're still just stomping saying, I am, I am. And that sounds like the fake ministry calling again. I'm a stick. You like the other 11 sticks next to Aaron's stick that budded and blossomed and bore almonds? Next picture, Ben. Look at that. Just broken palm heads perfectly dead now. And we'll just take a time to fall over and rot and die. What else? I think we have, we go to the, the bulrush now. There we go. So this is the tail of the lowly reed, what is called the common reed or the uh, Phragmetes Australis. And this one, I like the interpretation on this. The prophet is this guy. So if the elder is this erect palm that God's going to break the head off, the, the prophet's allegory and rebuke calls the prophets these little cattails. Next picture shows it up close. So this is the common river reed. And so the picture of this is when the wind blows, these things just kind of flap around. And the prophetic picture is the false prophets, they just prophesy wherever popularity blows them. They just, wherever the winds of opinion, this is where they... So he says the false prophets, they're not stately cedar trees. They're not mighty oak trees that stand in defiance of popular opinion. They just prophesy what's popular. They prophesy what brings the offering in. They prophesy what makes people feel good. They prophesy lies. And so you see two different trees or two different plants representing two different types of false leaders. A dead palm, which is nothing but a stick without any fruit or shade to offer, and a false prophet that just says, peace, peace, when there is no peace, or Four more years. Four more years. <laughs> now, let me just stop. I'm not a big Trump guy. You guys know that. I'm not on the Trump train. Won't be on the Trump train if he dodges all these indictments. But you and I both know, if he runs and he gets it, all the false prophets that have been for six years screaming, he's going to get it. They're going to be invigorated. And they're going to be justified and say, it came to pass anyway. So pray for our nation. Pray for our nation. All right. First Timothy three. I think we'll move on from that now. So we're talking about elders. We can see how Paul is building upon the Old Testament foundation, which so much of the New Testament does. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament a lot. 8,000 New Testament verses, and about half of them are references or direct quotes to the Old Testament. So we do well to pay attention. At least know the Old Testament. Don't believe the modernist who says you don't need to know your Old Testament. If it's the Word of God, you need to know it and be familiar with it. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 continues on saying, you desire great work, then goes to these 17 criteria we covered last week. We will not repeat again. But then it, it changes it up in verse 8. We go to the deacons. Likewise must the deacons. So we go from bishop elder, 
Now to deacons, bishop and elders, those are the overseers, so they're a higher rank. But now the word deacons is diaconus, that is, he that does the will of another. There is such a reputation as the deacon-possessed church. There are denominations who let the deacons run everything. I have a friend whose church was so deacon-possessed, he had to have voting approval to buy a box of pencils. That's a local church. They eventually ran him off. And their church basically shrunk rapidly because they forgot that it was the shepherd that leads the flock, not the deacons who probably smoke cigarettes, cuss their wives, and look at porn. I don't let people like that vote on nothing. What do you have against them? Sin? Voting is a horrible way to lead the church. Voting has put our nation in the condition it's in. So do we really want to trust voting? Plus, if we call to vote, everybody who hasn't been to church in a month is going to show up and want to have a say. So that's why we don't vote. We have a presbytery. We have a deacon. Well, we used to have deacons. We had to sit some of them down, most of them, all of them. We have a board of directors. I have a spiritual father, and it's working pretty good. Why would we let folks vote? You can't even vote to get to church on time. Totally skip your responsibility in the back. Don't even call anybody. Let them know you're a no-show. Yes, then get offended and slander on social media. Why would we let you vote? <laughs> how much did you pray for the church last week? Well, not at all. Then how do you know what God wants us to do? Right, how much do you pray for me? Well, not. How much do you slander me? A lot. So then why would I let you vote? <laughs> Who thought this would be a wise way to steer God's kingdom? You know, in the Old Testament, they voted and usually killed prophets when they did. I remember there was this popular vote in the Gospels, and they said, what should we do? Crucify him. Unanimous popular vote. So when you give God's so-called followers the vote, they'll kill him every time. Two options, yay or nay, Barabbas, no, 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 no. You want the son of the father or you want Barabbas, whose name means son of the father? Give us Barabbas. We don't want that son of the father. We want this son of the father. They voted, picked the wrong guy. What would you have me do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify him. That voting made Pontius a little nervous. You're like, oof, I don't feel like we should vote. I'm glad we're under a dictatorship. And he listened to the vote, and that's what they did. Thank God it saved us, but I don't need a savior again. I got one, so we don't vote. <laughs> Amen. And I, the church does vote. They vote with their church attendance. And, and typically the big churches are the easy ones with low standards. That's how folks vote. So deacons are they that do the work of another. It says of deacons, and again, this is an office. We have to appoint people to this office to be, uh, diaconist means servant, he that does the will of another. It should strike us as interesting that this is an office. There's an official office called servant, which means you have servants and then you have specially appointed servants. But it also tells me we don't just let anybody do anything around here because to be a deacon, there's criteria. We don't want just a warm pulse. We don't just want you to walk upright, chew bubblegum, and read. We want you to meet certain criteria in your walk with Christ. Don't you believe we should have high standards? Yeah, I think so. So what should deacons be like? Well, they should be grave. That is behavior that can and does demand respect. You don't demand respect, but you carry yourself in such a way people can't help but respect you. And they're not to be double-tongued. That means you don't say two different things, one thing out of your mouth here and something out of your mouth over there. Not double-tongued, not a gossip and a slander. Or, oh, I love my church until somebody in town runs your church down. They're like, hey, you know, you're right. Oh, see, if you're going to promote to elder, you got to defend and be willing to take the hit with the church. Not given to much wine. Well, we don't want to do that. You don't drink it for your often stomach's sake. You take Pepto-Bismol for that now. We don't have time to get into discussion of wine, but you're not a drunkard. Are you against alcohol? Absolutely. Jesus turned water into wine. Your name's not Jesus. You're not at a wedding. 
and you don't need wine. And we, we like to say, well, here's a bottle of water. You can drink as much as you can convert by your faith. But seeing as how you can't make it to church on time, I'm doubting you're converting any of that water to alcohol. <laughs> and if you could, why would you want to? I can drink if I want to. Well, why did you want to? You, what are you self-medicating? And how about maybe that story has a lot more to do with the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost when they said these are drunk with new wine. And this is not what you think it is. These are not drunk as you suppose. What if there's a lot more to it than just Jesus turned water into wine? He also cast out devils. I don't see you fighting to do that. He also rebuked perverts. I don't see you fighting to do that. How come it's always the substance abuse, substance abuse, addiction? How come there's always a defense of addiction? Maybe you have a demon. So I don't know. Anyway, we like our deacons sober. Yes, we do. My wife was hit by a drunk driver. I was not happy. She had to have surgery over it. Totaled her car, had to buy a new car over it was not happy. Nothing good comes of alcohol, especially not in this country when we can't regulate anything we do. It is good preaching. I don't agree. I don't care. We're not voting. (laughs) (laughs) Not greedy of filthy lucre. That is unscrupulous money. Doing anything, just hustling, hustling to get money. If you're into sales, sales can be a noble career or you can be a hustler and a scam artist and a flim-flam man, and that shouldn't be you. You shouldn't pressure people. I make a horrible salesperson. I I did it briefly when I worked at Lowe's 20-something years ago, and I told them, I'm not going to be good at this because I don't lie, and I'm not going to sell product I don't believe in. And I would tell people, you don't want to buy this. This is junk. I see these returns all the time. (laughs) I mean, this one costs more, but I don't ever see these guys come back. But then again, nobody buys these because they're more expensive. So I don't know what to tell you. Maybe go to Home Depot. (laughs) But then there are those that are just greedy and they'll do anything to close the deal. And that person wouldn't qualify to be a deacon because that's filthy lucre, unscrupulous game. You got to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. The mystery, uh, that's a term that refers to that which God has revealed to you. You keep it sacred. The mystery of the gospel, Christ in us, the hope of glory, things the world can't look into. It's a mystery to them. You've got to hold the mystery of the gospel in a pure conscience. You know you've not sinned against your God. You've not violated the doctrines he's taught you, that you're holding clear to it. Because you've got to, as a deacon, be clean in your heart and clean in your mind. If you've been taught not to gossip, you don't gossip. If you've been taught not to slander, you don't slander. If you've been taught to pay your tithe, you pay your tithe. To be on time, you're on time. You've got to be able to have a tender conscience. Because as a deacon, you're going to be serving people and you want to give them something they can look up to. You got to be better in a sense in your Christian walk. We'll say not better. You got to be more mature in your Christian walk than the people you're over, but you're over them by serving them. And let these also first be proved. So this word means to be found innocent after a public investigation or innocent after a public investigation which means just because you want to be a deacon doesn't mean we say, well, thank God, we need someone with the pulse. Can you take out the trash? We honestly just don't let anybody take out the trash. And folks get a little bit offended at it, but I say, listen, number one, it's the Lord Jesus' name on the line. But number two, this is my church. Now, I, I, I shepherd it under the Lord, but I'm known in this community as the pastor of our church. This church is my livelihood, and I put you over the trash and you take it and you like just throw it in the back of your truck because you're too lazy to walk it to the dumpster and it blows out all over the street and they come by and pick it up and it's got my letterhead all over it. You hurt our reputation. So no, if I don't trust you, I don't trust you with trash. You got to be found faithful to even take out the trash. Amen. I know that's a little bit of a foreign concept for this region because we are poor minded. We're lazy minded. This region has a reputation and we're trying to change it. Yeah, let them also, then uh, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Twice it says, innocent after a public investigation. Let them also be proved, that is, to be examined, tested. And then it says, verse 11, even so must their wives. Now, 
there's a little bit of a split decision on this among the Greek experts and theologians because the word wife means wife or woman. And so it can apply directly to the wives of the elders and the wives of the deacons, or it can mean the female deaconesses because there's permission in the New Testament to be a female deacon. Sister Phoebe in Romans 16 was called a deaconess of the church at Sincrea. So we'll apply it to both. The thing that I have learned and my big takeaway is when I'm going to appoint elders or deacons, I also look very closely at their wives. And there, it may be that you as a husband qualify, but because of the quality or the maturity of your wife, I can't appoint you yet. Because when you get appointed and ordained to be a deacon or ordained to be an elder, you get attacked. And if your wife has trouble with my preaching from the pulpit, she's not going to like what we have to do in private. If your wife can't handle the preaching, if she can't handle your leadership, she's not going to be able to handle mine. And so this comes back to what uh, Timothy says about the elders, that the bishop, he has to be able to rule well his own house. So that, that shows the responsibility of a man to be able to disciple his wife. We still believe in the biblical patriarchy. I don't believe in the caveman patriarchy where the man does nothing but demand sandwich and a sex. I don't believe in that. I mean, both of them are great. Sandwiches are great. Sex is great. But if that's all you expect out of your wife, that, I, don't, I don't blame a feminist for hating that. I believe in biblical patriarchy where you represent Christ to your wife who represents the church and you lay down your life for her and you wake up before her and you go to bed after her and you help carry burdens with her. You don't just make her carry everything as well as your kids. That's kind of a selfish human man. And I wouldn't marry that man anyway. I wouldn't let you marry that man. But it is the husband's responsibility to disciple his wife and bring the things out of her that God's put in her. That's also why we're very careful when we help you guys court and we tell some, my wife will tell some of you ladies, honey, I don't, I, I, look somewhere else. And you, you girls have to be willing to listen to that and postpone your dream. That could easily become a nightmare in five years. But I have a dream. Oh, it's going to be more of a nightmare. The deacon's wives or the female deacons must be grave. That is behavior that can and demand respect. If you have to demand respect, you're not respectable. Not slanderers. That is, you, have a, a, you're not, you don't have a dirty mouth. The Greek word is diabolos, where we get diablo or diabolical. Diablo is, of course, Spanish for devil. Diabolical means demonic. And so you, your mouth can't be that. Now, I'll be very honest. Let me take a pastoral moment. Just hear me carefully. When I lose church members or potential church members, it's usually to some of you women and how you talk to them as visitors. It's really quiet. Kind of got real heavy there for a moment. And I don't believe anybody means to be diabolical. But in the 16, almost 16 years I've pastored, I've had some of you ladies tell some of our visitors they weren't dressed appropriate to be here. And I could smack the crap out of you over that. Because they didn't come back and you thought you were righteous. And I recently had visitors come and some lady told them that, you know, you know, come as you are, but we'd like to see you in a three-piece suit. That was recently. And they've not been back to our church And if I find out who that is, they came when Dr. Barclay was here as a visitor. And they asked somebody, one of our ladies, you know, are we underdressed? Well, you know, come as you are. We don't mind if a farmer wears overalls, but if you got a three-piece suit, we'd like to see you in it. Here's the pastor tonight in a pajama top. So when have I ever reflected a three-piece suit as a requirement to come to our church? That is a woman who doesn't know what our standard is around here. That's a dim woman who cost us a church family. Or I also got word a couple years ago, uh, one of our major city institutions 
was doing something at CPAC and they needed some overflow. I was not informed of this till recently. And they came over here to ask if they could maybe even rent some of our rooms for teaching. And whoever they spoke to said, well, are there any gays involved? Because we don't let gays in the, in the building. That makes me want to cuss. That makes me want to cuss. To tell somebody in the city who's wanting to ask if they can use our facility and the first retort is, well, are there any gays involved? Because we don't let gays in the, in the church. Since when? And you talk that way, you may end up gay yourself. We have gays come through here all the time. Some of your kids are gay. So I don't know who that was. Yeah, they're not deacon material, that's for sure. So if any of you who are guilty of this level of stupidity and heresy and ruthlessness and legalistic upper Cumberland, you can repent to me and I'll look at you and say, since when have I been as stupid as you make me out to be? I don't want to hear any of you nosy women ever look at any of our guests and tell them they're not dressed appropriately because you're dressed fancy, but you're a moron in your heart, a self-righteous snob. And I'll never know what it's like to pastor them and see them grow in Christ because your legalistic, church of Christ-esque pietism ran them off. Why can't you just say, hey, we're happy to have you. What about Maul Creeble? Wore the same flip-flops every service. We didn't care anything. Mark Creeble when he's alive. Same blue shirt with Mark's pops and denim jeans. And the same flip-flops Maul wrote. Don't care. Maybe I should start dressing down for a little bit to help some of you tightwads loosen up a little bit. Have you not seen how anointed our corporate prayer service is? And we're all in here coming from work and half the time I lead it in tennis shoes. I, I just, it hurts my heart that I've pastored you this long and some of you women, some of you women still don't get it. You're legalistic, you're self-righteous and you don't understand what we're trying to do to help the region. I told you the story of our friend out in Seattle who got born again. He ran a Dungeons and Dragons game room. When I met him, he had an ACDC shirt on, but he had won so many young men and girls to Christ through his game room. He had to buy a van to start bringing them to church. He was winning so many folks to Christ in his little suburb of Seattle that that town ran him out because he was stealing kids away from the Boys and Girls Club because they were coming to his Dungeons and Dragons business game room, like we have a game room over here, which is owned by a local pastor, by the way, and he uses it as outreach. He was winning so many people to Christ that community vomited him out. And he had to buy with his own money a van to bring all those folks to his church in an ACDC shirt. And here you are in a three-piece suit and a pretty robe telling folks, well, if you don't dress nice enough or if you're gay, we don't want you. So if I find out who you are on a bad day, I will excommunicate you. And I promise you that. And it's always seemed to be women who shoot their mouth off and cost us people who could be discipled here. So you have more of that Upper Cumberland religion in you than you realize. To tell somebody, are there any gays involved because we don't want them here? You're a moron. Please hear me from my mouth. I love you, but you are stupid. You're not that stupid. So don't be that stupid. We're trying to win people for Jesus. I actually have a, a buggy, and I'm going to figure out who it was. And I'm going to have a serious, if they even still go here, I'm going to have a serious talk with you because that's disappointing. We're supposed to be winning people to Jesus, not just making this like a, a new legalistic kind of church of Christ thing. Even they're loosening up and letting people in. Not us. We're running people off because they don't have three-piece suits or they're not straight enough. Even so must their wives be respectful, not slanderers, sober. That means calm and collected and you, you have control of your emotions. Faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. So there's no polygamy there. That was a big issue in the early church era with 
the uh, Roman influence of the Greeks and all the polyamory going on. I'll tell you another odd story. I just heard this week, we have a local, I won't call it a church because it's not a church in the biblical sense. It's a religious community. And my friend was there to do some training uh, on, on the secular matter, but it's training that he would do in any church or any school. And he said, the pastor who was a woman said, well, uh, we're glad that you're here. We, I want you to meet my girlfriend. All right. So he said, I really don't care. I'm just here on business. Uh, nice, nice to meet you. So then a few minutes later, he's getting things sorted. Uh, the wife, the pastor's female pastor says, I want you to meet my husband. So he said, all right, maybe I missed something here. So he said, I'm talking to the man. I said, oh, hey, now who are you? He said, well, I'm the husband of the pastor. He said, so then who's that girl? Well, that's my wife's girlfriend. And he said, so now no, what? He said, yeah, I'm the husband and she's the girlfriend of my wife. And my friend said, well, that, I don't get that. And he guy said, we're from California. That was his answer. <laughs> we're from California. Like, that's all you need to know. That settles it. That right here, <laughs> husband of one wife. <laughs> and the wife doesn't get a girlfriend. I mean, if we were writing the epistle, we'd have to like in parentheses and the wife doesn't get a side piece. <laughs> Ruling their children in their own houses well. So even that requirement is still there. Deacons have to rule their children and their own houses well. That, that includes your farmland. That includes if you got dogs, that includes your, you got to rule your house. It isn't just people in the house. You can maintain whatever your estate is, whether it's a little mobile home or an apartment or something big. If you can't take care of that, we don't want you to bring the chaos and, and kind of throw it in the body of Christ. Verse 13 is the promise for they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let me read this to you out of the Amplified. This is the classic edition. We don't have the classic, otherwise I would share it with you. I think we have the more modern Amplified, but let me just read you that verse, uh, verse 13. For those who perform well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and also gain much confidence and freedom and boldness. Now think about that promise. Consider that. If you serve as an excellent servant in the kingdom. It earns you something. It isn't materialistic. So we don't do any of this for money. Pastor Caleb pastors his church. He's still full-time employed in the world. And since we, I'm kind of a bishop over the church, we made sure the church started giving him and Miss Tiffany a little bit of money each month just so the church could be burdened by them because it'll benefit them. But it's not enough to support them. We don't do this for money. The first year we pastored, we didn't take an income from the church. We worked our secular jobs. We don't do any of this for money. But if we do the kingdom right, if we serve God right, then we will earn for ourselves much confidence. Who couldn't use more confidence? And freedom and boldness in the faith, which is founded on and centers in Christ Jesus. So that's one of the promises of coming up higher in the kingdom. Not just always being a pew sitter or always a note taker. And that's great. Sit a pew, take a note, uh, enjoying the worship. Great. But if you want to be higher in the kingdom, you got to come up and be a servant. Like Jesus said, if you want to be great, be the least. If you want to come up, you got to serve. If you want to come up high in the things of God, there's a work to be done. There's always a work to be done. The more we grow, the more people are added here, the more of a burden we're going to have. The more kids we have, the more work we need to do back there. The more teenagers we have, the more work we have to do over here. The more a church grows, the more it is burdened by itself. The more... Those of us that are old-timer cookfuls here, I've been in cookful on and off since 94, moved away for a couple years and moved back. The bigger cookful has grown, the more burden it has become under its own growth. The more our municipality has to grow, the more our sewer has to grow, the more the hospitals had to grow, the more we had a little Walmart, then a bigger Walmart, then a super Walmart, now two Walmarts. Lowe's had to get bigger to accommodate our growth. Any church that grows has to grow to care for itself. That's, that's part of life. If you and I will serve in this kingdom, it'll bring us a great promotion. So verse 14, let's wrap up with these last three verses and then next week we'll pick up with chapter four. Actually, next week, Brother Chad's preaching, so then two weeks we'll pick up with chapter four. Verse 14, these things I write unto you, Timothy, hoping to come unto you shortly. 
But I write these things that if I tarry long, you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. So there is a standard and a protocol for how we do behave ourselves in the house of God. There is a standard. And he just exemplified that. He just gave us a list. That you ought, would know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There is a way we are to carry and behave ourselves. The local church shouldn't look like a nightclub because the nightclub's not the pillar and ground of the truth, the local churches. It's very popular right now to make your church look like a nightclub or a dinner theater or a comedy zone. Some churches I go to, I don't know, are we going to have a magician get up next? Oh, is this Cirque du Soleil? Are we going to do one of those cool black light shows? What's going on here? It doesn't even look like the house of God. A Muslim architect told me in Nairobi, Kenya, five years ago, we were redesigning the sanctuary here using the best we could with a 120-year-old storefront. I said, what do you think, sir? Tremendous man. He's a Muslim, an architect, brilliant man, lived in Nairobi, did mostly uh, mosques and churches. He was not hostile to the faith. We talked theology quite a bit as we waited for our flight. But this Muslim said, Regardless of what you decide, after we discussed some options with these open rafters and a lot of this inspiration, he, he encouraged. Some of this is Icelandic uh, inspiration as well. He said, regardless of what you do, the house of your God should make your heart to stoop. Can you believe a Muslim gets it and the nightclub pastor doesn't? Regardless of what your house is, whether it's a tin hut in the bush of Africa or terracotta something down in New Mexico or Mexico, or whether it's a bamboo thing in the bush of China hiding from the communists, whatever it is, it's sacred. Every church I've ever been into has an altar where God is centered. That's a real common term right now, centered. Well, how am I not center God? There's the altar where the authority goes forth, where you come to as an act of humility and contrition. Why would we then take that pattern and make it look like the world? Paul said we ought to know how to behave ourselves in the house of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is godliness? That God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus. Justified in the spirit, anointed of God. Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. And there is the gospel, the manifestation, the incarnation in one succinct verse manifest. There's a bunch of verbs here. Manifest, justified, preached, believed, received. That's the mystery of the gospel. And if you can't preach that verse right there and do an hour, take it for an hour, you shouldn't be preaching at all. Sounds like a challenge now. Brother Chad, there's your challenge for next Wednesday. <laughs> take those five verbs and fill an hour with it. No, no, preach what you want to preach, sir. All right, we learn anything tonight? Yes. 